All right, welcome to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, with uh, Jeff and uh, myself. Oh, oh, and Marion, my co presenter, yeah. <laughs> Good um, morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, everybody. How are we this morning? Uh, yeah, quite Hot well. and sweaty? Well, I think finally, after a very pleasant November, it's now yeah. turned, as Summer's it? coming. The Pretenders Brass in Pocket. We uh, got a message back from regular listeners Jack and Pete saying that the voice wasn't going to air, and our friend has actually helped us sort that out. There was a um, technical issue. Uh, the songs were playing, yep. which is good. Um, That's great, but and, our voices weren't coming over. Well, we're into the stories now, so I'm Indeed. glad you'll hear our voices. Uh, this is Raid uncovers the ACT's quote largest illegal controlled drug distribution network, according to police by Tom Piccioni, Canberra Times, December the 9th. A raid has uncovered and, quote, enormously destabilised what police claim is the uh, largest illegal controlled and prescription drug distribution network in the history of the ACT. The wide range of drugs were allegedly sold online by the group, said to be operating under the encrypted message handle Oz Farm Labs and distributed nationally through Australia Post from the online pharmacy. Quote, I can confidently say this is the largest seizure of prescription drugs that we have ever had in the Territory and also down in Victoria as well, said Detective Inspector Mark Steele. Thomas Eric Kelleher and uh, James Mertens, I normally don't name the um, guilty parties, yeah. but faced the ACT Magistrates Court on Saturday morning when both applied for bail. The two men were uh, each charged with single counts participating in a criminal group, 10 counts of supplying anabolic steroids, seven counts of supply of declared substances and four counts of drug trafficking. Uh, one man was refused bail and described as being the, quote, more serious offender. He's also charged with possessing a weapon and contravening an order made by a magistrate. Another fellow, nicknamed 30 and, and described by police as the operation's uh, runner, was granted bail on strict conditions. 
He's not the mastermind of the whole alleged operation, said legal aid lawyer Sarah Higgs. A third man, whom allegedly self-identifies as the boss of the operation, is set to face Queenbean local court on Saturday and is expected to be extradited to the ACT in coming days. As well as drug trafficking and participating in criminal group charges, uh, the man's set to be charged with a number of additional offences. They include dealing with the proceeds of crime, exceeding a million dollars, obtaining um, financial advantage by deception, oh, and a dealing in identification material in order to commit an indictable Commonwealth offence. So they've been up to no good. Mm, thanks, Jack, by the way. Uh, speaking to media outside the city police station, Inspector Steele said police made significant seizures as a result of searches on Friday. Quote, a house was restrained, five motor vehicles were seized, three motorcycles, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and significant quantities of prescription and controlled drugs. He said, multiple bank accounts were also restrained. ACT policing as part of a joint investigation with Victoria Police, alleged the group distributed a significant quantity of drugs, including Xanax, anabolic steroids, human growth hormones and THC gummies. Prosecutor Mark Wadsworth, who opposed both of the men's bids for bail, said police had found the pair were using encrypted communication software and cryptocurrency. Police documents tended to the court alleged the operation employs a number of yet-to-be-identified employees such as salespersons and a personal assistant. The documents detail a number of recorded conversations between the three men. During one phone call, the yet-to-be-extradited Gugong man tells Kelleher about being pulled over by the police in New South Wales, quote, lucky the cops didn't search the car. I had an ounce of ketamine and like half an ounce of coke on me. He said, yeah, yeah, I could have ended very bad, like phone and then fake bank accounts. End quote. Inspector Steele said further charges could be laid pending the digital analysis of devices seized during the searches. He also said the investigation was ongoing and further arrests were to be expected or expected to be made. While seized drugs were still being analysed, the officers said he expected their value to land in the seven-figure range, which is pretty high. Mm. Magistrate James Lawton ultimately refused Kelleher's bail, citing his extensive criminal history and history of non-compliance with court orders. It appears he's well-versed in the use of encrypted communication applications and did indeed use those to operate a business, the magistrate said. Mr Lawton described the evidence against the alleged offender as somewhat overwhelming. <laughs> Both men are set to face court again in January. Mm. All right. Now, this next story we've mentioned before about the upcoming summer Sydney Music Festival and uh, in the past it not going too well for a number of our younger members of our community because of, um, well, no, pill test, drug testing, having to enter the event through passing a phalanx of police and um, their sniffer dogs amongst them. So, you know, if they get caught, they have their drugs seized, they miss out on going to the event with their friends, 
So a lot of them panic and just take what they intended to have for all maybe at once. and inside yeah. at all at once. That's and it's horrendous. it's led to like one summer there were six fatalities. Anyway, this is the latest on that issue. Four people hospitalised due to drug issues after attending a Western Sydney dance music festival. December the tenth, abc.net.au by Jesse Highland. Four people were rushed to hospital in a critical condition after attending a music dance festival in Sydney's west during a severe heat wave. Where last they Saturday. don't have drug checking, but they do have dogs, sniffer dogs. Well, it's not a, and a welcoming monitoring, mon- yeah. environment. And a lot of people freak. And the heat actually is another big issue. Indeed. Um, if and, you're paying. and therefore not having enough water in your system. Well, if you're paying $5 for a small bottle of water, a lot of people are not hydrated. The revellers were at the epic music festival at the Sydney Showground in Sydney Olympic Park, where temperatures reached a maximum of 42.5 Celsius at 3pm. And that was just in the air, Geoffrey. Imagine what it would be like in the pit, yeah? That's hot. Before gradually dropping, the temperature didn't fall below 30 until 7.51, according to the Bureau of Meteorology. New South Wales Health Minister Ryan Park said the hospitalisations were drug-related. Quote, I can report that there were four transfers to hospital from the Epic Music Festival, Mr Park said at a press conference in Wollongong. Quote, those people are in a critical but stable condition and their conditions appear to be from taking drugs and drug-related issues. Mr Park said the government worked extensively with festival organisers to ensure safe measures, but not in ways that actually work. No. Um, so to make sure that measures were in place for attendees amidst uh, the sweltering conditions, including an increase in first aid and the number of, quote, cool and chill-out zones. Mm. OK. Uh, cool and uh, chill-out zones are selected areas at the festival where revellers can take a break and relax. However, the health minister warned that people had to take some responsibility, a quote, to make sure, quote, they understood what they're doing, end quote, when attending the festival. Government cannot and will not be responsible for every individual's behaviour, but we're working with festival organisations to make organisers to make them as safe as possible, he said. New South Wales sent a statement earlier in the day about the hospitalisations. Two men in their 20s died from suspected overdoses after attending the Knockout Festival on September the 30th, which was held in the same area that hosted Epic Festival. The investigation into what occurred is still ongoing. As the pill-testing debate rages on, several doctors say the conversation is swamped by political discourse and our concerned part and con- our concerned party goers don't understand the risks in max- mixing certain drugs, how potency can turn lethal, and why extreme hate is deadly. Well, there's no surprise those. if there's not accurate information easily available. Um, That's right, and if you try to get accurate information, I remember ringing up and, and actually being uh, asked why I wanted to know. Oh, great. And I really felt that that was a pretty much an infringement on my rights just to be anonymous as the whole point in ringing instead of Poisons going face information is meant to yeah. be anonymous. I can report that uh, in the Improvements in Karma's website, there's a new article about um, cocaine and ways and ideas of uh, making it safer, which is really good, written by someone with a lot of expertise in this area. And there's a number of other articles on other uh, substances. So um, there's a lot of very important and 
accurate information on the Karma website. And um, also Karma has uh, various other social media um, sites and they're all been doing well, more people listening. And pa- Karma has a worker at the drug checking um, station. Sta- a yeah, peer so worker? Th- who they goes have a peer worker who Kentish. introduces people to the system, to how it operates, and will give people, um, consumers, the information that they need to know to keep themselves safe if they are taking the drugs that they are having checked, if the drugs that they are having checked are in fact what they expect them to be. Well, what I've heard from Mitch is that, uh, once again, cocaine purity has uh, maintained its ridiculously high levels of purity, as well as MDMA, which is definitely not the history of those drugs in Canberra. Absolutely. Um, So there's somebody new operating uh, and bringing those drugs into Canberra. So just be careful. Use less. You can always use more, not yeah, the other way around. Always use yeah. more. So, just some words of caution in that area, and of course, um, uh, you know, you know, we support CanTest. I think it's one of the most important initiatives of the ones that uh, the Legislative Assembly have put through. Um, Absolutely, it's it's going to develop a lot of very important um, and the data. only thing we can say really is expand the hours. We just well, promote the promote the service as much as we can. And just exhort the government to support, promote the, expand the hours. That's of the only critical criticism the only I have criticism, too. Yeah, yep. yep. Other than that, fantastic development. And let's hope some of these initiatives, you know, affect or get brought into uh, effect in other states. You know, like well, and provide the basis, the evidence base on which um, governments say they want to, you know, to have, to make decisions on what services should be provided. It's exactly what drug checking is all about. Exactly. Is making sure that we have the evidence and we're not using overseas evidence, which they say doesn't apply here. Well, up till now, it's basically been people's anecdotal um, stories and being told by someone that bought something off that, oh, mate, this is great or this is average or whatever, um, it, it's just gen- general sort of statements. It's not this is uh, whatever percent pure with this percentage of adulterants or cutting agents, you know, like actual 100% um, evidence that you can yes, take no, to the, the bank, you know. Like. The, the reports we've been getting from the drug checking um, centre have been really quite informative and um, it's imperative that we get that kind of information or we can't tell you about it. Exactly. Um, and if we can't tell you about it or government can't tell you about it and tell you the truth about it, because that's what's important, is yeah, that you get reality, you not just what? what we want to have happen. Yeah, or hope, you know, yeah, like just, just say no. You can't cross your fingers so. and hope everybody's going to be all right. It doesn't work. It's never worked. No, Nancy Reagan uh, put her name to that, just say no. and um, Bless you, Nancy. It uh, was an unmitigated disaster. Okay, we've got the... Uh, National News coming up, and we'll return after that. National Radio News. Hello, I'm Shannon Kirkwood. Ongoing consultations will determine the role of ATMs amid a decline in the use of cash. Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock has made the statement at a payment summit in Sydney today. She says the share of consumer payments made using cash has declined from 70% in 2007 
to just 13% last year. A number of campaigns are underway in Australia, pushing for the protection of the right to access and use cash, in particular in regional and rural areas. Ms Bullock says the move away from cash is putting pressure on the economics of ATMs and the transportation of notes and coins. We're keen to see the industry maintaining a broad coverage of ATMs at reasonable prices, particularly in regional and remote areas. So we're going to continue to engage with industry participants to determine whether any changes are required to the RBA's regulation of the ATM's industry to facilitate this. That from the ABC. The Minister for Trade, Don Farrell, says China has lifted suspensions on three Australian abattoirs. The ABC says Mr Farrell has confirmed the development today. Meat exports were suspended from two of the abattoirs in mid-2020 and from a third in early 2022, with China claiming the move was due to labelling and health certificate requirements. But analysts say the bans were the result of a campaign of economic punishment carried out by China against Australia amid political tensions. A deal has been reached between leading unions and Treasurer Cameron Dick in Queensland to back Stephen Miles as the new Labor leader and Premier of the state. The deal has led to Health Minister Shannon Fentiman dropping her candidacy bid. Mr Miles will now become the 40th Premier of Queensland after Anastasia Palaszczuk announced her shock resignation on Sunday. Ms Fentiman confirmed her withdrawal in a statement this morning, saying it was clear the majority of Labor members within the Parliament would support Stephen Miles. Under the factional deal, Mr Dick will remain as Treasurer but will be promoted to Deputy Premier. The United Workers' Union had also backed Mr Miles. Global news coverage of the violence against women from both eastern and western countries needs to be unified, according to a panel of experts and journalists. The 2017 Me Too movement will be analysed in how media sources focused on victims' stories from the global north countries while continuing to ignore those in the south. Dr Andrea Baker from Monash University described to National Radio News the levels of violence in the global south countries, but even more her concern at the lack of media coverage. She hopes the panel is a stepping stone for a wider global approach from media sources and journalists in the effort to maintain fair reporting. Me Too has shifted, but violence against women is a continual global pandemic which we have to address as journalists in a concrete, constructive, solutions-driven way to address this pandemic. Turning to sport now, Alex Demonor has been named Australia's most outstanding elite tennis player and ambassador for the sport, receiving the prestigious Newcomb Medal for 2023. The world number 11 was awarded the honour at the Australian Tennis Awards in Melbourne last night. Meantime, Alicia Mollick received the Spirit of Tennis Award. And in BBL action overnight, the Sydney Sixers have beaten the Hobart Hurricanes by six wickets. Daniel Hughes received the Player of the Match award after scoring 60 runs from 50 balls. National Radio News, produced by Charles Sturt University, the Community Radio Network, and supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Every dollar donated to 2XXFM helps us support the local voices in your community. Find all the details at 2xxfm.org.au People Powered Radio 2XX All right, welcome back to People Powered Radio 2XX 98.3 FM uh, You're with Jeff and Marion uh, and this is news from the drug war front it's four minutes after 11 and we're broadcasting from Studio One uh, I've got a 
piece from Amber Schultz from Sydney Morning Herald, December the 10th. Uh, this stroke survivor wants the government to do one thing while he's still alive. Tony Trimingham, who's actually well known in, in this area, wants to see one outcome from his 20 years of drug reform advocacy that New South Wales decriminalises small quantities of drugs. But the 75-year-old stroke survivor is not confident of seeing any meaningful reform in his lifetime. Quote, I think it will happen, but it will be after I've gone, he says. And when it does happen, people will say, well, why didn't we do this before? Fair question. Trimman began his campaign uh, for reform after his son Damien died from a heroin overdose in Sydney way back in 1997. A death that Trimingham says could have been prevented through opioid reversal programs and criminal justice reform. Trimingham, who played a pivotal role in Bob Carr's 1999 drug summit, which we've spoken of before, says the current government has a, quote, lack of will. In 1999, we thought that it would be the beginning of everything happening. It hasn't. It's been very slow progress. And I'll recall also the excitement and hope that the um, drug summit in New South Wales that Bob Carr uh, organised and people like Andy uh, Madden, who was um, head of uh, the peak body, Avil, spoke at and, frankly, was uh, crucified by the mainstream media. Um, but she, you know, stood up and uh, made the required points about the failure of prohibition and the importance of... Um, implementing some of the things that came out of the drug summit. And uh, sadly, we're still here, what, uh, 24 years later and nothing's really improved, which is a shame. Waiting for yet another planned conference. Well, the current new Labor Premier doesn't seem to have, not a plan, doesn't even have an idea or express... Or a date for a summit to discuss the possibility of a plan. Or express an opinion, which has ex- upset a lot of people who spent a lot of effort trying to get him elected and thought um, New South Wales Labor, you know, had been in power for a long time, would actually have some plans to make some small reforms, hopefully. But thus far, no sign of it. There's a, some sort of commitment to another drug summit, un- time unstated. As yet, un- yeah, undated. Um, you know, a lot of bitter disappointment that Chris Minns just doesn't, well it's not an issue that resonates with him and maybe uh, uh, New South Wales Police have uh, more power than most other states and uh, what they say uh, applies so Did did you say that um, uh, that guy that was uh, looking for the drug law reform um is dying. Yeah. No, and wanted the one thing that he wanted changed was New South Wales drug law reform. Well, that's the story I'm doing right now. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. darling. I didn't know. That's what. Well, you're having a cigarette. Thing. You know what I was saying. No. I Key didn't. players of the 1999 summit, which led to Australia's first safe injecting centre in King's Cross, reunited in state parliament recently to strongly urge the new government to reform drug policy. Earlier this year, the New South Wales Labor Premier, Chris Minns, completely ruled out removing criminal penalties for small possession of drugs. He's also said that further reforms will have to wait until after his long-promised drug summit takes place. It is expected in 2024. Now, that's not something that he's promised. It's sort of hoped for in 2024. Speaking at the 
1999's event hosted by Uniting at Parliament House in November, former New South Wales Premier Bob Carr said, quote, I still believe that courage is uh, vital in this difficult area of drug policy. Drug reform was the one area where states still have decisive power, he said. And that, that's true. Um, each state decides um, essentially how they're going to uh, deal with uh, these issues. And he urged policymakers to listen to a wide range of experts and witnesses with lived experience. So Bob still got his heart in the right place, yeah. which um, is really good. And just going on from that, there's a piece from Nine News, uh, Alana Shiberis, Premier, Treasurer and Opposition Leader admit that they have tried cannabis. Governments should not be bold but just intelligent about moving along with the community. Nearly two-thirds of Australians said they supported pill testing back in the uh, 2019 National Drug Strategy Household Survey. Harm Reduction Australia Executive Director Annie Madden has urged New South Wales Premier Chris Minns to announce the summit time to get on with the business of saving lives and reducing drug-related harms. It's time to end the criminalisation of people who use drugs and all of the social and health harms that come with that. The stigma, the discrimination, the incarceration rates and the drug-related deaths, Ms Madden said. Sydney Medically Supervised Injecting Clinic Medical Director Dr Marianne Jauncey says politicians need to, to attend the summit with open minds and that is very important that you have an open mind. And uh... you, you got... The bit, no. I urge the government to get to this front and centre so that we can start to move in an adult way, she says. We need to have the evidence that shows criminalisation is not a deterrent in, to drug use, it just gets in the way of having a proper approach. Frustrated with the slow approach, the AC, uh, New, South, sorry, New South Wales Greens introduced a bill to licence as many as four pill testing sites. Oh, that's an excellent uh, proposal, including one in a fixed location in New South Wales whilst the Legalised Cannabis Party introduced their bill to legalise the personal consumption of cannabis last month. Family Drug Support can be contacted for help dealing with issues uh, in your family on 1300 368 186. So a lot of people calling for action from um, the New New South Wales government and are feeling disappointed, I'm afraid. Uh, One more piece from Australia, Canberra Times, a fellow called Masood Zakaria, been deported to face charges in Australia by Anna Houlihan, December the 4th. A major drug gang uh, alleged kingpin will face an Australian court on December the 4th, so it's already happened, after being deported by Turkish authorities. Masood Zakaria, 28, was arrested when he landed in Darwin on December the 3rd after reportedly fleeing Australia in a fishing boat in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered how he got out. Interesting way to go. Zakaria was held in Darwin on New South Wales arrest warrant for offences including conspiracy to murder, knowingly directing the activities of a criminal group and supplying a prohibited and a prohibited drug and dealing in the proceeds of crime. Where you are. I'm Australian Federal Police Assistant Commissioner Stephen Donetto said he had a warning, quote, for all Australians to think they can hide offshore in safe havens and avoid facing Australian courts for their alleged criminal activities. The AFP will be relentless in their pursuit until you face justice. More than 70% of the transnational serious organised criminals who target Australia are offshore, he said. One by one, these alleged criminals have been extradited or deported to Australia to face our justice system. Turkish officials notified Australian authorities 
after the man allegedly entered their country in 2022 on a false passport. Further inquiries established he was living in the country's southwest coast. While overseas, police said the man continued to uh, associate with a number of organised crime figures with significant links to Australia. He was arrested and transferred to immigration detention by Turkish authorities in January and has been held in custody until his deportation and he will face Darwin Magistrates Court. It's already happened on December the 4th. Yeah, I thought we'd actually... We had done something on that last week, as I recall. I'm sorry, people, I just am totally lost when it comes to what Geoffrey's reading, and that's leaving him in an invidious position of having to read the whole lot because I I had... um, I've got six words to go. When New South Wales Police will make an application to extradite him. All right, I might go to a song much requested uh, by one of our best and most supportive listeners. It's a track by a band called Ammonia, and I can tell you the name of it because he's actually texted it to me, which is very, very handy. And the name of the song is... Is it Drugs? Uh, drugs, mm. and in brackets, and Money. Yep. So this is Ammonia. <laughs>
All right, that was Ammonia and Drugs and Money. It's coming up about 17 minutes after 11. You're in uh, Studio One, Two Double X, People Powered Radio, 98.3, and this is News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Jeff and Marion on behalf of Karma, the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy. And I've got this piece which um, comes from miragenews.com, December the 8th. Opioid use in surgery patients has declined and the slowdown has been noted. And I'm sort of, yeah, a bit concerned about is this uh, morality related or yeah. is it some new research that says there are better drugs to give people post-surgery? Anyway, post-surgery pain relief has shifted away from opioid-containing medications over the past seven years, but the downward trend has slowed since 2020. Overall, the rate of surgery-related opioid uh, prescriptions dropped by 36% from 2016 to the end of 2022, and the average amount of opioids in these prescriptions dropped by 46%, so serious reduction. That combination of declines means the total amount of opioids dispensed to surgical patients in late 2022 was 66% lower when compared with early 2016, according to findings published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Network Open, uh, University of Michigan. But the rate of decline was much faster before the pandemic, the researchers report after comparing surgical opioid patterns before and after 2020. That's even after they uh, took into account the unusual circumstances of spring 2020, when most elective surgery temporarily stopped to free up hospital capacity for COVID patients and reduce unnecessary exposure to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Even with the overall declines, American surgery patients in late 2022 still received the equivalent of 44 uh, 5 milligram uh, pills of hydrocodone from pharmacies after their operations on average. That's far, far higher than what patients need for most procedures. Mm-hmm. Quote, these data need, uh, suggest surgical teams have substantially reduced opioid prescribing, but also suggest that efforts to right-size opioid prescriptions after surgery must continue. Said uh, Kao Ping Chua, MD, PhD, the senior author of the new study and an assistant professor of paediatrics at uh, UM, University of Michigan. Michigan. He worked with the first author and the former University of Michigan research assistant, Jason Zhang, who is now in medical school at Northwestern University. The researchers also find that some types of surgeons have reduced the amount of opioids dispensed to patients more than others. For instance, reductions were particularly large in cardiothoracic surgery and ophthalmology. Orthopaedic surgeons still account for more than half of all uh, surgical opioids dispensed to to American patients, even as the rate and size of prescriptions filled by their patients dropped. Right size prescribing was the next heading. The authors note that surgeons should not strive to eliminate opioid prescribing altogether. Quote, the goal should be to ensure that the opioids are only prescribed when necessary and that the amount of opioids prescribed matches the amount that patients need, said Zhang. Achieving these goals, he continued, could help reduce the risk of opioid misuse, persistent opioid use and diversion of pills to other people besides the patient. The potential for accidental exposure to opioids by others in the household and interactions between opioids and other substances, including alcohol and prescription drugs, 
are other reasons to focus on non-opioid surgical pain care. Surgical organisations and the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention have advised surgeons to rely less on opioid-based acute pain relief for their patients since the mid-2010s, but no studies have examined surgical opioid prescribing trends using pandemic-era data. Well, this troubles me. I've been communicating with a good friend uh, from the UK who's got you know, three types of cancer and not looking too good, he's lost his hearing and eyesight in one eye. And, you know, he writes really brilliant poetry, but, um, you know, it's he's trying hard to hang on and hoping for the best. But um, the battles that he's been having to get proper pain relief would just make you want to cry. It's, look, I think it's ever been the case, Geoffrey, that particularly if you ask for pain relief, then obviously you're drug seeking and that's, that's an assumption happened. that is made by many doctors and medical professionals and that's a, a worry from their perspective that if you're asking if you have pain you're suffering some kind of intense pain then clearly you're doing drug seeking behavior and that's a real problem a real if you're problem. in pain you're in pain there's no two ways about it the thing about the opioid pain medicate type pain medication is that while it may not Get rid of the pain. It stops you caring about the pain. And it means yeah? you can actually function with that. You can function. You know, with Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real worry. I'm really concerned about that idea that they would just reduce willy-nilly the amount of opioids prescribed to people. Well, we're all As, getting older and, you know, who knows what's around the and corner. And notice that the uh, orthopaedic surgeons and cardiothoracic, so people who ride bikes... Uh, motorbikes in particular, and people who have heart attacks are not having their pain relief reduced. Um, and I wonder if that has to something to do with older men being doctors. Oh, I hate to speculate. Um, mm. Even my 88-year-old aunt is in hospital at the moment um, and she's been having the same problems. They actually lied to her and said that given her a, um, a polexia and uh, they'd actually given her an endone. So she caught them out lying. And she's 88, you know, so wow. it's not just youngsters. Okay, we're going to go overseas to a country we haven't reported on much before, and it's uh, Uruguay, which oh, um, yeah. won the first uh, Football World Cup, a little sidetrack. Uh, the networks of Uruguay's most wanted drug trafficker by Christopher Newton, insightcrime.org. In fact, if you're interested in the intricacies of the um, connection between drug cartels and nation states, uh, insightcrime.org is the place to go. December the 8th, this was written. Uruguay's most prolific drug trafficker, Sebastian Marcet, has strung together an in intercontinental network of associates implicated in cocaine trafficking, money, money laundering and high-profile assassinations, all whilst escaping the clutches of authorities in Dubai, Paraguay and Bolivia. So he's good at getting away. But the self-proclaimed leader of the first Uruguayan cartel does not control any territory. In fact, his cartel is not even a single structured group. Instead, Marcet's network is a flexible collection of businesses and family ties that helped him become the biggest trafficker in one of South Africa's smallest nations. I think it's only got tick over three million people. Mm. It's pretty small. Here, Inside Crime breaks down its inner workings um, and they've got a lot of information on the website if you want detail. 
The Clan, the, uh, it's the next group, uh, Marset's most powerful connections are inside the Insfran clan, a family with ties to both transnational crime groups and also the highest level of politics in nearby Paraguay. Situated between Bolivia and port countries like Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay, Paraguay became important for transporting drugs to coastal countries where they could be shipped on to Europe. Marcet uses his connections with the Insfran clan and others to coordinate multi-ton shipments of cocaine from Bolivia to South America's eastern ports, including at least 16 tonnes moved from Paraguay to Europe. Quote, Sebastian Marcet worked more as a manager, as a broker in the, in the area, said Jose Amaria, a consultant on security issues in Paraguay, in an interview uh, with Insight Crime. As his illicit dealings expanded, Marcet began to deal in more steps of the cocaine production chain. Amongst the many items seized as part of Paraguay's operations against his networks are planes. Small private planes are often used to fly cocaine from Bolivia to the bordering Paraguayan province of Chaco. Ch- quote, Chaco, which represents 60% of Paraguayan territory, has very little surveillance, and yet there is aerial, uh, in- aerial infrastructure that can be used for flying in many of, of the places, said Amaria. From Paraguay, Marset coordinated the movement of cocaine to shipping containers to Europe. At the top of the infrastructure, uh, Inns, sorry, Insfran clan, are Miguel Angel Angel uh, Insfran Galliano, also known as Tio Rico, who is in charge of logistics, and Jose Alberto Insfran Galliano, who is a pastor and founder of the Centro de Avivamiento Church. Miguel Insran leads the clan and organised the storage, transportation and distribution of massive shipments of cocaine. He was arrested in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, for drug trafficking, money laundering and other crimes and extradited to Paraguay in May. Multiple governments suspected Tio Rico of being connected to... the May 10, 2022 assassination of Paraguayan prosecutor Marcello Pecci in Colombia. The accusations claimed that Pecci was killed for leading investigations into assassinations and trafficking that led back to in, uh, the Insfran clan and Marcet. On August 12, 2022, Colombia's President Gustavo Petro tweeted that Sebastian Marset was behind Petri's assassination. And earlier this month, one of the suspects accused of coordinating the hit claimed that Petri's murder was ordered by Tio Rico and ex-president of Paraguay, Horacio Cartes. Cartes' uncle, Juan Domingo Viveros Cartes, piloted the drug shipment that first landed Marset in jail in 2013. It's a family business. While running global operation, Marset entrusted many of his business activities to close family and friends. Members of his family are mostly suspected of dealing with financial sides of Marset's crime, being linked to money laundering and accused of overseeing payments for drug shipments. Like many organised crime groups around the world, Marset mainly surrounds himself with family and a few close friends. This includes his wife, Giannina Garcia-Trocchi. She has a red notice from Interpol. The launderers 
the launderers claim the dirty cash through legitimate businesses associated with the network, such as the San Joel Group uh, and Total Cars. Garcia Trocchi opened a bank account using false documents claiming to work as a, quote, transport agent, end quote, and deposited $7,500 a month, according to Uruguayan paper El Pais. Total Cars is linked to a number of Marset connections. Giannina Garcia Troc's brother, uh, Mauro Garcia Trochi, is also linked to Total Cars. He's accused of modifi- modifying the accounts to launder money and administration of the business. He's wanted by Interpol. It's interesting how in a small country it's sort of working out on a family business yeah, type well, arrangement. I, I don't think it's just the small countries, but in fact in the smaller the country, the tighter knit you would think that the clans would be. And you want family. You? Yeah, family yeah. and friends, would, close friends would be the ones you'd want Trusted. around you. Yeah. Uh, Marset's half-brother Diego is accused of managing the payment of shipments and overseeing the import of drugs from Bolivia to Paraguay. And the husband of Marset's sister, Sebastian Alberti Rossi, also had a red notice from Interpol. He was convicted of murder murder in Uruguay and incarcerated, but he escaped in 2021 when he was allowed to take out the garbage. Oh. Among Marset's clan, Albert, uh, Alberti Rossi, quote, was one of the first to go to Bolivia and make direct contract, uh, contact with drug traffickers. On October 26th, he turned himself into Uruguayan authorities and will continue his sentence in La Libertad prison, where Marset allegedly built his uh, contacts. Fellow Uruguayan Federico Ezequiel Santoro Vasayo is alleged to be a close friend and advisor to Marset. Santoro is accused of being in charge of receiving money from drug sales and paying those working in the network. Authorities claim he advised Marset on the best ways to launder money, set up elect- electronic payments and arranged flights for Marset and Kubi to travel with Marset to Dubai. Santoro is also linked to the infamous Venezuela to Iran plane and was wanted for human trafficking. He was arrested on August the 23rd in the Paraguayan border city, Ciudad del Este. Mm. So that's the latest in Uruguay. It's um, it's a drug scene happening. A little bit of good news um, from um, the Philippines. Every week we tend to report on the Philippines. My God, good Um, news. The government is taking the right path on return to the International Criminal Court. This is by Nellicent Bautista from philstar.com from December the 10th. Manila, the Philippines, the government is headed in the right direction with its reassessment of possibly returning to the International Criminal Court. The ICC, former Senator Leela de Lima, said yesterday, quote, the direction that the current government is pursuing is the right path. It is correct. It has my support. I'm talking about the reassessment of their position in regard to ICE in the International Criminal Court, Dilemma said in an interview with uh, Mel Sarsa Maria. Uh, this response came after President Marcos announced last month that proposals for the country's return to the International Criminal Court are, quote, under study, end quote. Dilemma expressed her support for the possible return to the Rome Statute, emphasising that the withdrawal was wrong in the first place. The withdrawal in itself is wholly inconsistent. 
the motive behind withdrawing unilaterally at that is already a mistake, Delima said. It is so that he, former, quote, in brackets, former President Rodrigo Duterte, can avoid accountability because he knows the international court probers were going to look into the drug war killings, she added. And we said that at the time, didn't we, Jeffrey? We did. We commented on it regularly. In March 2018, Duterte ordered the country's withdrawal from the Rome Statute following the preliminary investigation launched by the ICC Chief Prosecutor against the alleged crimes during the the war on drugs. Delima hoped that the results of the government's reassessment would be positive, claiming that the return to the International Criminal Court would help fight the the crimes against human rights. Quote, let's rejoice... Let's rejoin the ICC because it's the right thing to do and we should cooperate to give justice to the thousands of victims of extrajudicial killing during the drug war, she added. I wonder what's changed politically in the Philippines since last time we reported. Yeah, because I haven't heard anything from his daughter, who is the vice president. And meant to protect him. And I thought that that was one of the reasons why Marcos got in but with her as the vice president. Mm. So... Obviously, something's happened um, politically that we have not yet been made aware of. Well, with all the focus on the situation in the Middle East, you know, it's, I mean, reporting on um, Ukraine seems to have just dropped off the face of the earth. Um, Indeed. And, you know, well, I actually went to a protest in Grima Place, first I'd been to in a long time, um, and it was actually quite well attended, had a lot of um, speakers, a woman had uh, grown up in Gaza, um, a union spokesperson, and also I was very pleased to see ACT Greens uh, MLA Rebecca Vazzarotti, okay. who was on our Karma board for quite some time. Yeah, and it was funny because sitting in the crowd, I'd heard a few people saying, oh, "It's all well and good, but where, where's someone from a political party? You know, like yeah. Labor or Greens?" And within Rebecca five seconds, Rebecca was at the mic. Speaking very strongly, yeah, um, that and this has to has to end, yes, and criticising the Albanese government for being, you know, mealy mouthed about their approach, and um, you know, we used to be quite respected. We were involved in setting up the human, uh, you know, Declaration of Human Rights uh, mm-hmm. post war. You know, Australia was very highly respected. And we also had decent policies about um, immigration and, uh, I mean, we, you know, the whole stack of things that Australia has turned around or appears to have done a 180-degree turn on in terms of their policies, and that's a real worry. Well, no independent foreign policy. That's yep. what really worries me. It's just America tells us what to do, what war... Well, America up. and Britain. Yeah, yeah, and we just say, uh, yes, sir, we're signing up. <laughs> we'll, we'll be there. All right, um, this is a, a record I'm going to play for my colleague Dave. He loves the Ramones. It's uh, Rockaway Beach. It's a, a live version, but uh, this is for you, Dave. Yeah, that's a pleasure.
All right, that was the Ramones and uh, their live version of a Rockaway Beach. Um, we're still overseas. This is um, a very disturbing situation about opioid disorder uh, hinders methadone treatment in cancer patients. Um, we haven't done this one before, have we? From Pittsburgh, a cancer diagnosis can greatly disrupt treatment with methadone, a medication used to treat patients with uh, opioid use or substance use disorder, according to a piece published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine by a University of Pittsburgh researchers. Not University of Michigan. Okay, different one. Yeah, no, it's a... Okay. I mean, there are a lot of people who've been on methadone for um, opioid treatment. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to have your cancer treatment... uh, Impacted anyway through the lens of a specific patient treated with methadone for many years and later diagnosed with head and neck cancer. The authorities uh, discuss how segregating methadone distribution from general medical care is problematic and emphasize the need to integrate opioid, opioid use disorder treatment and improve patient access. Before his patient, uh, sorry, before his cancer diagnosis, the patient was afforded a 28 day supply of take home methadone doses which he self-administered and per clinic and federal regulations returned to the clinic every 28 days for monitoring and refills. Unaware that the patient was taking methadone, his oncologist prescribed oxycodone, an opioid, for cancer pain. Jeffrey, this does ring a bell from last week. Oh, okay. That's why I can't find it in this week's um, thing, but continue, I just... Well, maybe we'll just sort of summarise it. It's essentially evidence that's saying being a long-time opioid substitution treatment methadone patient, um, there's some evidence. Yes, and that that doctors had actually changed the way they... that they would not prescribe opioids to somebody. Once they found out that the the person was on methadone, they wouldn't prescribe opioids. Just another problem people are going to face. It was another stigmatising kind of episode in the life of a... um, yeah, opioid user. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, let's go into this. Um, it's an update on Republicans' plans to turn the war on drugs oh. into a real war <laughs> by attacking uh, Mexico. Hooray for the Republicans. The awful idea is increasingly popular on the right of the grand old party and has been embraced by several presidential candidates. Over the last few months, leading Republicans, including most of the party's presidential candidates, have converged on the idea that we should turn the war on drugs into a a real war by attacking Mexico. Donald Trump and others have long said the US should wage war against drug cartels in much the same way as the US have against uh, ISIS, terrorist group. The rise of this idea is one of the most dangerous trends in recent uh, grand old party or Republican uh, right-wing politics. It would make the already horrific war on drugs even worse and also threatens armed conflicts with Mexico, destroying our relationship with a critical neighbour and our largest trading partner. It is simultaneously cruel, unjust and just plain stupid. If, like most libertarians, you oppose the war on drugs as a whole, you obviously have reason to oppose this massive potential escalation. But even if you take a more favourable view of drug prohibition, you would do well to draw the line at turning the metaphorical war into a real one, The present decades-long war on drugs is already a horrific disaster. 
It kills and imprisons large numbers of people in both the US and abroad, while stimulating organised crime and doing very little to curb harmful use. It's a massive infringement on liberty and bodily, bodily autonomy. The, quote, war has also severely undermined both uh, individual constitutional rights and structural constitutional limits on federal powers. The current fentanyl crisis, used as a justification for attacking Mexico and other drastic measures, is itself largely a result of the war on drugs, a predictable consequence of the iron law of prohibition under which banning markets incentivises dealers and users to turn to harder, more, more potent drugs. It's unlikely that attacking Mexico will do much of anything to curb drug dependency in the US. Most fentanyl smuggling is conducted by US citizens, crossing legal ports of entry, not undocumented immigrants or Mexican drug cartel op operatives. If military intervention succeeds in killing or disrupting some Mexican suppliers, others, including others from other countries, are likely to take their place, so long as there is still a demand for the product. And that's the point. The US has a demand for this uh, product. That has been the result of past attempts to interdict drug supplies from Colombia, Afghanistan and elsewhere. At most, we might get a temporary modest uh, reduction in drug use. Whilst the benefits of attacking Mexico are likely to be minimal, doing so could easily have, have huge costs. Obviously, it's almost unavoidable that innocent civilians will be killed or injured in the fighting, especially since drug traffickers are hard to distinguish from the rest of the population. As identified in the in, uh, Philippines. Yes. Yeah. There are likely to be casualties amongst US troops as well. Well, that's strange. One point, the 1.6 million Americans living in Mexico could potentially become targets for terrorism or re retaliation by drug cartels. Here in the United States, we could see racist and vigilante violence against Mexican-Americans. At the very least, a conflict with Mexico would predictably, predictably inflame racial and ethnic tensions. Mexico recently became America's largest trading partner. A military intervention would likely disrupt that relationship, seriously damaging both nations' economies. Perhaps worst of all, an invasion of Mexico would permanently damage our relationship with one of our two most important neighbours, along with Canada. Over the last century, the United States has greatly benefited from having generally friendly and cooperative relationship relations with the two nations with which we have long borders. Undermining that is sure to cause all sorts of problems and seriously weaken the overall US position in the world. Among other things, we are likely to have far more cross-border violence and the Mexican government will have incentives to ally with China and other US mm, adversaries. Good point. Turning Mexico and its people into our enemies won't, quote, make America great again, end quote. It would predictably weaken us and strengthen our adversaries elsewhere. In fairness, Republicans are far from the only ones who deserve blames for the evils of the war on drugs. That ill-advised conflict has a long bipartisan history, one to which the President... President Biden, among other Democrats, has made plenty of contributions, but attacking Mexico would go well beyond even the worst previous <laughs> drug war policy. Set a new standard. Yeah. Mm, the best that can be said for the Republican enthusiasm, 
for attacking Mexico is that some of the GOP politicians who promote it may be just posturing or would content themselves with a symbolic show of force. Alternatively, they might limit themselves to only the kind of small-scale operations that may be approved by the Mexican government. But I'd not put too many eggs in that basket. If the symbolic show of force or small-scale operation fails, as it likely would, there would be pressure to go further if invading Mexico becomes a major priority of the Republican base a GOP president might find it hard to resist that pressure. Mm. A terrible, previously fringe policy has become the mainstream position of one of our two major political parties. That grace greatly increases the likelihood it will actually be attempted should that party take control of the White House in the near future. Well, Meaning look, next my year. one word for a return of Trump is chaos. Can you just imagine what potentially could happen? I mean... Well, look, even uh, just watching um, America overnight and and some of the, you know, more the panel discussions that that they conduct, look, it doesn't matter whether you're talking to a Republican or a Democrat, the idea of returning to a Trump-led um, United States government or presidency um, has many um, devastating implications for the United States and its international cooperative policies. Yeah. I mean, what do we do, for instance, mm. Australia who's just well, allied we're themselves all the way with, with the United States? USA, yeah. yeah. So we're all away with Trump. All away where with USA? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think it's crazy. Look, I might um, play uh, a quick song of one of the great songwriters, Chris Christopherson, and the song is um, "Help Me Make It Through the Night," which I think is a really beautiful song. Yeah. Take the ribbon from your hair. Shake it loose and let it fall Laying salt upon my skin Like the shadows on the wall Come and lay down by my side Till the early morning light Is your time Help me make it through the night I don't care who's right or wrong I don't try to understand Let the devil take Yesterday is dead and gone And tomorrow's out of sight And it's sad to be alone Help me make it through tonight <laughs> Thank you. 
right, that was Chris Christopherson and helped me make it through the night. We've just got time for one more story. This is news from the drug war front, and it's 10 minutes to noon on 2XX, People Powered Radio. I've been mentioning, um, well, I've been mentioning a couple of times about this uh, Insight Prime uh, website, and I thought it might be interesting for anyone who's looking for unusual stories. Uh, they've actually got a mission statement. They're saying they're a think tank and a media organisation that seeks to deepen and inform the debate about organised crime and citizen security in the Americas by providing regular reporting, analysis, data, investigation and also policy suggestions on how to tackle the multiple challenge that is uh, presented. It does this by fusing investigative journalism with academic rigour, building its analysis from extensive ground research, which includes speaking to all the actors, legal and illegal, as well as its published work on the website, it works with a network of experts and partners in the region to provide bespoke risk analysis, diagnostics and opportunities for positive intervention. And I've been finding stories about countries you know, I've never heard reported on. Mm. Each year we hold conferences, launch investigations, conduct workshops, convene seminars and support local stakeholders to deepen the conversation around organised crime. Mm, virtual newsroom. Our newsroom team, like no other... Uh, global, multilingual and well-versed in the dynamics of organised crime. Although our main offices are in Washington, D.C. and Medellin, Colombia, Insight Crime has personnel positioned in half a dozen countries across the Americas and at any one time is doing research with multiple contributors in, and in numerous others. On the ground, our investigators are in the field from major cities to remote Rural Corners reporting on the latest criminal dynamics, actors and hotspots and gathering data to track the fast-changing illicit economies. Every day we scour hundreds of new outlets. This is monitoring academic journals and government, governmental and non-governmental reports from across the Americas to inform collected forms, the information collected forms the building blocks of the most comprehensive database on organised crime in the region. Oh, that's really important, Indeed. Mary. As a go-to resource, we continually develop and update profiles of countries, highly of criminal organisations and personalities from around the region. Highly organised with infographics and detailed maps, our profiles are a go-to resource for journalists, academics, civil society leaders, uh, academics, uh, government officials and others seeking to deepen their understanding of the criminal dynamics in the Americas. Academic alliances. We partner with leading academic institutions across the region, such as American University Centre for Latin American and Latino Studies, or CLALS, which has sponsored joint research initiatives, and the Universidad del Rosario in Bogota, which is home to our Colombian Organised Crime Observatory. Our staff about of about 50 investigators walking, working across the Americas and Europe includes reporters with years of experience on the ground, investigators with graduate degrees in Latin America, citizen security and conflict studies, and experts in design, translation and data analysis. We're a tight-knit team with a nerdy edge and a taste for high-risk environments. 
Despite our diverse backgrounds, we are bound by an abiding belief that exposing organised crime is critical to dismantling it. Well, I actually agree with them completely, and it's something that... It's um, a really interesting concept, isn't it? It's a a great concept, and you would have to have a thirst for a bit of risk, um, you know, to work with some of these organised cartels and... You know, they're, they're, they've got no qualms about um, taking you out if you become, you know, a problem. Oh, yeah, well, that quite clearly, you know, we've mentioned that in many um, articles, yeah. particularly around South America, you know, if you're a prosecutor who happens to be crossing oh, the line look and out. targeting the wrong person, you're due for assassination or a target for assassination. And a lot of them end up, yeah, getting buried. But um, it's just... Part of what we're trying to do with this show is to get people to think about it. Prohibition is not just Australia or America. It's a global problem that causes so many problems of, you know, there's a whole scale of problems uh, from, you know, a fine to being beheaded or shot or, you know, executed or, you know, some very Indeed. brutal punishments. Yeah. Um, the one thing you can guarantee is it's not going to change Prohibition is not going to work. We've had over six decades no, experiment. And the longer we pursue that track, the further away the aim will get from us, yes? Well, pe- people who you know, pass an opinion on this can't get past the propaganda. No. Because it's just been repeated, you know, like Goebbels well, said. We're continually talking about the basically the fundamentals are the, um, the morality of intoxication. Yes, no matter what the laws say, the morality of intoxication is the problem underlying everything. So, and when you pick uh, that a certain drug is an okay drug to have and other drugs are not, you're immediately creating a market for the unacceptable drugs because they become legal, illegal, and then they become expensive. I mean, that's a... You just create a market out of a point of view. Absolutely. And that's ridiculous. I was actually dismayed by some of the um, comments on the ACT government's um, Facebook uh, post about, you know, the details of the decriminalisation policy. And a lot of people were basically saying every big criminal in the country is going to be making their way to Canberra. And, you know, like... We're talking about very small amounts for private use. Yeah. It's still illegal. Police can still, uh, you know, confiscate. You can still be fined. It just means you don't end up clogging up the courts with a criminal no, record. and it just, it was a silly statement. And Yeah, it's just... It made I, no sense when it was uttered. It still makes no sense. I made the mistake of actually taking on one of them and he said, get out from the rock that you're under or something, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> you take your chances um, trying to debate some of these, um, you, oh, just set in the ways they just believe, you know, whatever right. the latest has been said by Murdoch. But anyway, look, we'll be back again we next week um, with some more stories. Oh, we will indeed. And we'll leave you with a little bit of our theme song, yep. uh, The Strangler's Golden Brown. Look after yourself. Yes. Please be careful. It's be hot. nice to each other. Stay hydrated. Stay safe. Stay hydrated. Get your drugs checked if you can. And we'll see you next. Talk In- to you next week. Indeed. Bye-bye. Take and care. Here's a bit of Golden Brown.
Texture like sun Lays me down With my mind she runs Throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown With golden brown Every time Just like the last On her ship Tied to the mast Two distant lands Takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown Golden brown, fine attemptress through the ages she's heading west From far away, stays for a day Never a frown